Well, you might have heard of the famous book called The Art of War by the Chinese military leader Sun Tzu. Anybody ever heard of that book before, The Art of War? He lived in the 6th century B.C., so this book has been around a long time. But it's had a tremendous impact. There are 13 chapters devoted to different aspects of war in this book. It's a very insightful book that's been studied not only by military leaders, but in other realms such as the business world or political spheres. In the book, Sun Tzu devotes attention to knowing our enemy and knowing ourselves. For example, he writes, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. So if we were to succeed in warfare, a basic principle is that we must know our enemy and know ourselves. Sadly, a lot of us Christians are struggling in the area of our warfare, not military warfare, but spiritual warfare, our struggle against the devil and demonic opposition. And part of the reason is that we don't know our enemy very well. We might know that the enemy exists, but don't really give a lot of attention to our enemy, or we vastly underestimate its power. You know, the scripture teaches that the devil is a roaring lion, a roaring lion that seeks to devour. But sometimes I think we regard him more like a house cat that might scratch us here and there, but not a deadly foe. We need to know our enemy so that we're not lulled into thinking that the Christian life is a playground rather than a battleground. We also need to know ourselves. Sometimes I think we don't really understand and appreciate that we truly need God's constant and complete help. Perhaps we might think we need a little bit of help, but at the end of the day, we have enough resources within ourselves to fight any kind of spiritual battle that comes our way. We've all heard that phrase, we got this, right? I got this. Sometimes I think we we apply that phrase in our spiritual lives, oh, I, I got this, God. But we really need to realize that we don't have anything apart from the Lord. We overestimate our own abilities and underestimate the abilities of the enemy. As we're going to see in our passage, our resources pale in comparison to the enemy. So friends, the topic of spiritual warfare that I'm bringing here today is so vital because as you think about your life and you, if you're honest with yourself, where are you struggling here today? If you look down further far enough and go to what's really at the root of things, and almost inevitably, spiritual warfare is going to be connected in some way or fashion. And so my prayer is that our passage will drive home the need to know our enemy and to know ourselves better so that we will succeed in spiritual warfare. Amen? So please, if you will, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. 
And as you're turning there, just say a couple of words to set the stage. This is the final passage, final section of the book of Ephesians, and it's a, it's a very climatic fitting in. In the first half of the book of Ephesians, Paul lays out uh, and describes our great, our glorious salvation that we enjoy, our incredible uh, riches that we possess now in Christ Jesus, just the incredible things that have been spoken of before time began and now that we walk into and things that are guaranteed for the rest of eternity, all of this that we have in Christ Jesus. So these great, rich, theological, biblical truths we see in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Then when you go to chapter 4, Paul shifts gears and starts talking about how do we apply these things now that we have seen who we are in Christ. So for, in, for example, in four one, he says, to walk, he calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So they were to walk in a manner are worthy of this great salvation that we've been given. And that word walk is important because it, it communicates a lifestyle. And so Paul uses that word walk five different times in the second half of Ephesians. He tells that we're to walk in unity, walk in holiness, walk in love, walk in the light, and walk in wisdom. So this is how we're to live in light of these great spiritual truths. But we know that the Christian walk is not easy, is it? It's not a stroll in the park. We know that we face many obstacles in our walk. We will face obstacles with our own sinful natures. We'll face obstacles from the world, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. And then, as we'll see here today, not only do we have our sinful nature in the world, but we also have demonic opposition that will tempt and utilize our sinful natures and the world to try to bring opposition against us before the Lord. So... We must be equipped to engage in ongoing spiritual warfare. We're never going to walk the way the Lord has called us to walk in unity, in holiness, in love, and so on, unless we take seriously spiritual warfare. So as you look at this passage in front of us, you'll see that it's going to go all the way uh, down to verses verse, verse 10 to 20. There's three sections there. We're just going to look at the first section this morning. And here Paul begins by commanding them to be strong in the Lord. And then he explains what that means by saying that they must put on the armor of God so that they can stand against the schemes of the devil. And the reason for putting on the armor is that their enemy is not other human beings, but the vast army of powerful demons. And since that's the case, they must put on the armor of God. And if they do, they can resist the devil and his demons. So in verse 10, Paul begins with these words. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. So that's really the overarching command for this whole section on spiritual warfare. Going all the way, say like it down to verse 20. The final, uh, the, the overarching command is to be strong in the Lord. We're to be strong in the Lord, not by our own willpower or our own resources, but everything is contingent upon being strong in the Lord. So we draw strength by turning to the Lord. And note how Paul adds that comment there, in the strength of his might, really to reinforce that our strength comes from the, pot, the might and the power of the Lord. Knowing ourselves, again here, going back to the opening part of the message we see that we need help constant complete help our strength is in the lord not in ourselves 
So what does he mean exactly? In verse 11, he explains what it means to be strong in the Lord. He says, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We are strong in the Lord when we put on the armor of God. And notice how he says there, the whole armor. In the Greek, it referred to the, the complete set of armor that a soldier would put on. Not bits and pieces of it, but they would put on the whole armor. Why is that the case? Well, it's just common sense that when a soldier goes out to battle, he doesn't leave gaps in his armor, right? He doesn't want to leave any kind of exposure, He wants complete coverage. And Paul's going to go on in the rest of the passage to talk about the whole armor of God, but he just lets it be known right from the beginning that we need to take seriously putting on all of the armor of God. Why is that? So that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. We have an opponent, a foe, who seeks to bring harm into our lives. His name is the devil, the chief fallen angel. He's called the prince of demons in Matthew 12, 24. He's also the arch enemy of the church. Friends, the devil is at war with the church. Do you believe that? He is. Revelation 12, John sees a vision of a dragon attacking a woman and her children. And I would agree with those who interpret that the symbolism there is the dragon is the devil and he is attacking the woman and the children, symbolizing the church. It says, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The devil is at war. And he's no gentleman warrior that does, you know, whatever it takes to engage in war, it'll always be done with honor and chivalry or whatever. He is a ruthless killer. John 8.44, Jesus says of him, he was a murderer from the beginning. As I alluded to earlier, 1 Peter 5.8 compares him to a lion. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Like a lion, the devil is a ferocious creature seeking someone to devour. You might say, well, how does does the devil wage war against the church? Well, let me tell you a couple things that he can't do by God's grace. Thankfully, he cannot make you lose your salvation. Amen to that? We see in Romans 8, 38 to 39... Paul says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, this is probably speaking of demons here, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the devil cannot make you lose your salvation. And he also cannot possess a Christian. As it says a little bit earlier in Ephesians, the Holy Spirit indwells us and seals us for salvation. So we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we cannot lose our salvation and we cannot be possessed by a demon. But the devil can devastate the life of a Christian. And he does so, as it says there in Ephesians, with schemes. Schemes. Brilliant, deceptive, and destructive plans. Let me tell you something that maybe is a little bit kind of 
sobering to think of. But Satan and his demons, they know who you are, right? They know who we are. They know our uh, susceptibilities, right? They know our weaknesses, and they want to weaken our faith. And they will use anything in the spiritual warfare grab bag against us. They will use temptation, false teaching, physical trials, interpersonal strife and relationships that go sour, doubt and disappointment that we might have with God. He will use all these means to crush us. Right now, he's at work in your life. Plans that have worked in the past and he wants to continue to use or new plans as he tries to strategize against us. And he's not going to stop. He's going to keep pursuing. The famous German theologian Martin Luther said, The devil takes no holiday. He never rests. If beaten, he rises again. If he cannot enter in front, he steals in at the rear. If he cannot enter in the rear, he breaks through the roof or enters by tunneling under the threshold. He labors until he is in. He uses great cunning and many a plan. When one miscarries, he has another at hand and continues his attempts until he wins. Friends, let me ask you, do you see your enemy this way? I think we need to remind ourselves of this reality. The devil is not some creature in red tights with a pitchfork, as we see in our culture, right? And he's not just focused on hardened criminals in the prison system or death row or just focusing on Satan worshipers. And he leaves the rest of humanity alone. He's a brilliant, vicious, and relentless supernatural being bent on your destruction. That's how Jesus and the apostles see him. So should we. So to recap, the purpose of putting on the armor of God is so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil, right? Next we see the reason for putting on the armor. Our battle is not against humans, but against demons. It says in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So the battle, friends, is not against flesh and blood, meaning other human beings, but against uh, spiritual forces of darkness, the vast army of demons. Notice the four different phrases or titles that Paul uses about them. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil. It's interesting that he uses all of these different terms. I say that because in Jesus' ministry, he just uses two terms. He says demons and spirits. But in the rest of the New Testament, they continue to use those words, spirits and demons. But they use kind of a variety of different words to refer to the spiritual warfare that we face. So in addition to these four words in our passage, there are also thrones, as it says in Colossians 1.16. Dominions, Colossians 1.16, 2 Peter 2.10, Jude 8. 
powers. Romans 8.38, 1 Corinthians 5.24, 1 Peter 3.22, and elementary principles. Galatians 4 and Colossians 2.8. In Ephesians, Paul's already referred to demons. He said back in chapter 20, verse 21, he said when he was referring to God seating Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. In chapter 3, verse 10, Paul speaks of the church making known the wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Say, why'd you go through all that, Pastor? Why did it to show that there's all of these different words speaking of these demon forces to pose the question that we should consider here today is that is there some type of organization and structure within the demonic realm? Are there ranks? Is there, is there an organization and hierarchy of demons? Well, to me, the answer is not definitive in Scripture, but I think it does point that this is the case. I think it makes sense on one hand because God is a God of order. You look in creation, there's so much order and structure to how God has made things, and it only makes sense because it's based on creating more efficiency, more effectiveness when there's organization, when there's ranking, and so on. And the devil is no fool, and he knows that this is more effective, and so it would make sense that there is some type of pattern and organization and effectiveness to how demons work and operate in the world, and that not all demons are the same. Remember chapter 9? in Mark, uh, where the, de- the disciples were unable to cast out a demon, right? And so they got Jesus to do it. Remember what Jesus said to them? This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So this demon was more powerful than other types of demons. So I think when we think about the demonic realm, it isn't some just sort of helter-skelter, amorphous uh, group of beings who have no plan or organization or structure, But I think we should properly think of it as a well-oiled machine that is seeking to bring harm to God's people. I think it adds a a greater element of seriousness that God's people should have, that we're facing a foe that is well-organized and seeks to bring us woe. So this is the picture we see here of this demonic realm. But getting back to our main point that Paul is getting at here, is that demons are the chief opponents that we face, not human beings. Sometimes I see in in my life in ministry where sometimes we fall into the trap of putting all of our focus on other human beings who oppose the church. But we should remember that the real battle is always spiritual, whether great or small. For example, we were all grieved with the atrocities that ISIS has been committing on fellow Christians on other parts of the world. And we know that these uh, people who have done these things stand guilty before God, don't they? But behind them are spiritual forces of darkness, right? In our nation, when we see the assault on the sanctity of life or the sanctity of human marriage or religious freedom... Yes, people are guilty of violating God's standards. But behind them are demons. When someone wrongs you in your life, at home or work, in the community, those people are wrong in what they did to you. But behind them are demonic foes. You believe that? 
I think if you do, it changes how you view people. You'll see them differently. You'll see governments and nations differently. You'll recognize that, yes, they're guilty for the things that they are doing, but underlying and behind them stands spiritual warfare. And I think it kind of makes it easier for us as the church to love our enemies, as Jesus calls us to do, when we realize that standing behind those enemies really are underlying demonic forces that have tricked and deceived and misled people. Amen? Verse 13, Paul gives a summary command. He says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So given all that we've said so far about this formidable foe that we have, Paul kind of once again galvanizes the church here to stand firm against this enemy and to take up the whole armor of God. And so that if they will do this, they'll be able to withstand in the evil day. Now it's possible to take that phrase, the evil day, to mean just kind of a generic description of our fallen world you know, that there's just, we need to always be prepared because this day is evil. It's possible to take it that way, but I prefer to take it to mean that these are specific occurrences that Satan will bring into your life, and so that if we have the armor of God, we're able to withstand them. I think Satan operates strategically because if we just look simply at human warfare, uh, strategic assaults often are the difference makers in warfare, aren't there? There's a strategic battle or strategic moment when a battle or something can be decided. When someone is caught off guard, when the defenses are down, at that moment, that is when the battle is over. The rest is sort of just a, a falling down of dominoes. But it's at that moment when great destruction and great devastation can occur, the evil day. And Satan attacks at those moments. He will attack us when our defenses are down. And all of us sitting here today are susceptible to the evil day. Look at the Apostle Peter. He experienced just such an evil day. In Luke 22... Jesus and the other disciples shared the Last Supper. Jesus told them that he was about to, be, to suffer and to be betrayed by his own disciples. And in verse 22, Jesus says, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So Satan demanded to have Peter. And not just Peter, but the other apostles. Because in the Greek, the, the you is in plural. So he wanted to have all of you. Why did the devil want them? He wanted to sift them like wheat. You say, What's, what was that about, sifting? Well, sifting was the process of extracting the edible grain from the wheat stalk. And it wasn't a gentle process. They would put the wheat stalks on a hard floor so that oxen could come in and trample on them to free the grain from the pods. Then they would take winnowing forks and they would throw the remaining pile into the air so that the wind would blow away the shaft and the kernels of grain would fall to the ground. Finally, they would put the grain into a sieve that would be covered with netting. 
they would turn the sieve upside down, and then they would shake it. And they would shake it violently, really hard, to shake all of the unedible stuff to fall out. There would no longer be any remaining debris. So the devil wanted to sift the apostles to utterly shake down their faith. When Peter heard this, he said to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. In other words, I got this. I got this, Jesus. I can do it. So on a human level, Peter looked so strong, but he was no match for the devil. Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. In less than 12 hours, Peter went from saying he would be willing to die for Jesus to denying him three times. Indeed, his last denial wasn't just a meek denial, but it was a vehement cursing of Jesus to a servant girl whom he really had nothing to fear from, but Satan had worked so hard in his life to totally sift him in the evil day. And remind us again, friends, Peter was the leader of the apostles. He'd seen Jesus' miracles with his own eyes. He'd heard the Lord's teaching. He was a man of faith. Peter was the only one who walked on the water when Jesus was walking by. Right? He was a man of faith. He believed in the Lord. He was a bold man. He was always the one who was outspoken. Yet he denied sharing or who Jesus was just a few hours after the Last Supper. Peter was crushed on the evil day. And all of the apostles were crushed. They denied the Lord. They deserted him. The devil can sift each one of us on the evil day. So how do we respond? Let me just say two things in closing. I think we need to have humility. Need to have humility. Friends, you and I cannot stand against the devil and demons in our own strength. We must be strong in the Lord. It all comes from him. Jesus teaches us in the Lord's prayer to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And scholars tell us that that last phrase is better translated, deliver us from the evil one. We should regularly if not daily, pray that God would deliver us from temptation and the powers of the evil one. So let me ask you, are you at that place in your life right now where you realize you don't have this, you don't got this, that you need the Lord at every hour of the day and that you would wake up and get on your face every morning and say, Lord, Lead me away from temptation. Deliver me from the evil one. Help me to know the strategies that Satan is using right now in my life to discourage me, to doubt you, to not trust your promises. 
Help me, Lord. We need humility, don't we? We are not fighting someone that we can defeat in our own strength. But I also want us to be confident. Put a lot of spotlight here this morning on the formidableness of our enemy. But I don't want you to leave here today thinking, boy, Satan is just so powerful and we are just so overmatched and that's all you hear. Because I don't think that's the point of Paul writing here in this section about spiritual warfare. I don't think he's writing to make them fearful or despondent. But if you see in the passage several times he talks about that if we would take up the whole armor of God, we can stand firm against Satan and his opposition, right? He doesn't write us just so we'll be scared. He writes us so that we will be confident that we can withstand this formidable foe because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We can stand strong in the might of the Lord. I think God wants his church not just somehow to survive, but to thrive and to stand firm against the powers of darkness. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You have all of the authority and all of the power in the spiritual armor that Paul will continue to flesh out here. And it's not some type of mystical spiritual armor. It's just basically all the things that have been discussed there in Ephesians and just putting on the belt of truth and the gospel and all these things, just applying who we are in Christ. And if we'll just live these things out, we can resist the devil and he will flee from you. So no matter what you're going through in your life, and you think, I've been beaten down a thousand times, the thousand and first time, that's sure to happen. That's not what the Bible says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you if we will put on the armor of God. Amen? God wants his church to know our enemy, that we face a formidable, ferocious, vicious foe, But he also wants us to know ourselves. That on one hand we are weak and we can't fight him in our own strength. But because the power and the might of the Lord, we can stand firm in the evil day. Hallelujah and praise to our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it speaks to us of things that we see in our world, and it speaks to us of things that we don't see, the unseen world, that is so important for us as we strive to live the Christian life. And Lord, I pray for us and my brothers and sisters in the Lord here today. That, God, we would take seriously the spiritual warfare that we are engaged in. 
that, Lord, we would take seriously the need to arm ourselves with the whole armor of God. Because, Lord, you want us to be strong and effective as witnesses for you. So, Lord, remind us, even of the example of Peter and the apostles who walked with you for three years, yet were sifted once they turned their eyes from you and looked to their own strength and resolve. And, Lord, we also pray that you would encourage us that, Lord, we can stand firm in the evil day because we're more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. We thank you that we are strong in him and in him alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.